Uh, this morning, we want to turn our attention to Luke uh, chapter number four. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in verses 14 through 30. Luke chapter number four, verses 14 through 30. And the scripture declared, and Jesus returned in power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogue uh, being glorified by all and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and to the recovery of sight to the blind, to set, liberty, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your, in your hearing. And all, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote, me, uh, quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard uh, you did in Capernaum, do here now in your hometown as well. And he said to them, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many uh, widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon uh, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the, the Syrian. And when they had heard these things, all in the synagogues were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Uh, just for a uh, few moments, I want to share from the sermon title, Hard ministry in a hometown. I'm going to talk about hard ministry in your hometown. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for uh, the blessing that you give us uh, to be able, uh, God, once again to be together. God, help us to see uh, the truth that is found in your text. God, help us to see exactly how we can respond in a way that protects us from being indifferent. God, I thank you, God, that you give us an opportunity to minister. And you give us an opportunity to minister in hard places, God. And I thank you, God, as Jesus was rejected and as Jesus was attacked and persecuted, he remained faithful in the midst of the attack. God, help us to see this truth and help us to apply this truth. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, the last time we were together, we focused on the temptations of Christ. In chapter 3, uh, Jesus is confirmed, catch this, as God's beloved son. But in chapter 4, it opens up with Satan questioning whether or not Jesus is the divine son. 
Chapter number three ends with a confirmation that Jesus is God's beloved son. Chapter number four begins with Satan trying to attack Jesus to question whether or not he is the son. To really understand the past, we must understand that Satan tried, catch this, to attack Christ based upon his identity. When we consider the passage and what it is communicating, we need to recognize that the issue with temptation will always center around where we place our identity. Temptation should cause us to ask the question, will my identity be connected to what God has told me to be true? Or will my identity be connected to what the world has told me to be true? Will I find my identity in Christ or will I find my identity in my occupation? Will I find my identity in my race or will I find my identity with my, in my relationship with God? Where will I find my identity? When we face temptation, we must settle the issue of who we are and also whose we are. And as we face temptation, we must remember that temptation itself is not a sin. I need to say this as clear as you can hear it. Temptation and the presence of temptation is not within itself a sin. Many of us have believed the lie that the longer uh, we grow in our relationship with Christ, uh, the, the more we uh, have victory in Christ, we will get to this place where we will no longer face any temptation. We believe that the temptations that we face are really indicative of our own sinfulness or ungodliness. And if you've ever thought that Temptation will leave you or temptation is present based upon your spiritual maturity. I want to remind you of what Hebrews 4.15 tells us. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. The text is communicating that Jesus was tempted in all points that like we are. It's communicating that every temptation we face, Jesus faced. And if Jesus faced temptation and it was not connected to his level or lack of maturity, we need to understand that you and I will face temptation until we get to heaven. That is true for all of us. Now, we need to understand that the issue with temptation is not that it's a sin. The issue with temptation is how, we will, how will we respond to the temptation? That's why 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is so important. It tells us no temptation has taken you that is not common to man, meaning that all of our temptations are common. But catch this. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But catch this. With the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Three times Satan presented a temptation and three times Jesus took the way out, catch this, by relying on God's word. And in responding with God's word, we are reminded that Christ and his identity never changed. When he faced temptation, Christ uh, rested in his identity as God's beloved son. And when we face temptation, when we face the issues in life, we can either believe the lie, we can believe uh, that that we are not the son or the daughter of God that we have been called to be. We can forget about the position that we have, have in Christ. We can believe that, that Satan has been able to, to remove us outside of God's love, outside of God's grace, outside of forgiveness, or we can understand 
that because of Christ, because I am in Christ, because my faith has been placed in Christ, I am loved. I am forgiven. I am accepted. I am redeemed. God does not deal with me according to my sin, but now God deals with me according to his love because of Jesus. I love the passage because before Jesus began his public ministry, catch this, he settled the issue of identity. Before he, prepared, before he presented other people with an opportunity to have a relationship with God, he was settled in his own relationship with God. Uh, I've often said this, and I need to continue to say it, that every believer should be a minister, that every member of our church is a minister. So what I'm about to say is not just applicable for those who feel a call to preach. What I'm about to say is for anyone who has responded to the call of Christ. Before you enter any kind of public ministry, we must settle the issue of where we will place our identity. You must settle who you are. You must settle whether or not you are a son or a daughter of God. You must settle whether or not you've really been forgiven. You must settle whether or not you have had all your debts paid. Are you defined by the world's standard or are you defined by God's word? Will you be defined as a man that is marked by what the world would call a man or what the world would call a woman? Or will you find a definition that is consistent with what God has said about you? Here's the truth. Before you can help introduce someone to a relationship with God, you need to be settled in your own relationship with God. Before you can help someone grow in their relationship with God, you must grow in your relationship with God. Now, I want you to hear me very clearly because at this point, I, I can hear people saying, well, I got to be perfect. I can't sin. I can't make any more mistakes. I did not say you have to be sinless. I did not say you have to have a seminary degree. I did not say you have to be, I did not say that you have to be perfect, but catch this. I'm saying that we need to all be progressing in our faith. Your life must be marked by taking steps of faith rather than growing stagnant in your faith. Before you can expect someone to follow you spiritually, you must be consistently following Christ sacrificially. Jesus in the text experiences effective ministry after the, the issue of identity had been settled. I want to go out on a limb this morning, even before I get into my points and say something. If you are not currently effective in having personal ministry, in serving others, and helping others grow, that is going to require that you change where you place your identity. When I see people who are not having an impact on others, when I see people who are not serving others, when I see people who are struggling to make an impact with others, I see people who have not settled the issue of where they will place their identity. In the text, Jesus settled the issue of identity, and then we see him begin an effective public ministry. In the text, we see that Jesus served and shared with others, and as he did it, we learn three significant things about his ministry. First, we learn about his custom. Verse 16 says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as was his custom, and he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. In verse 16, we get 
a word that Jesus returns to his hometown. Uh, He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. And the text tells us he was raised in a place where he was he was he was raised in a place and he lived his life in such a way that he had certain customs. The scripture says, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. It says it was his custom, not just a routine. It was what he consistently did. It was a pattern for him to go weekly to the synagogue. The synagogue was the place where people would gather together for worship. It was the place where people would gather together for the reading of God's word. It was the place where people would gather together to hear teaching from God's word. We should understand that we are, we are actually sitting in a modern-day synagogue. It's a place of worship. We're here today, and we are gathered together to get today because this should be the consistent pattern. This should be a commitment that we are going to do this, not out of routine, not out of duty, because it is, but because it is something that God is pleased with in our life. I think I need to say something very important here about what the passage is communicating. By Jesus having a custom, when we read the word custom, we really should read the word commitment. When we think about the word commitment, we need to understand that Jesus was committed to being at the place of worship. For Jesus, it was not an option. For Jesus, it was not something to add on, but it was something that he was totally committed to. I I do believe, and this is not just for church, I believe this is in every aspect of our culture and life. We live in a day and time where the word commitment just sounds a little too heavy. Sounds like we're judging. Sounds like we're fussing. Sounds like we're pointing the finger. But in the text, Jesus was committed to a custom. He was committed to doing something consistently to where he could be counted on. I, I think it's, it's unfortunate that we do live in a day and time where many Christians and also many pastors have, have purported this lie that it's just not important if you come to church or not. You can log online. You can, you know, have your online service, get your praise on. Um, I've had several people, which on some level, it gives me a little bit bigger head than I have. Uh, Pastor, why don't you do live feed so I can, I don't want to get no new church. I just want to stay with Calvary, right? It's not healthy. It is not healthy for us to not be a part of a local body. It's not healthy for us to do our own thing. It's not healthy for us to do it outside of God's will. Now, I want you to hear, hear me, clearly hear me on this one. I am not talking about an issue of your salvation. Whether or not you come to church does not determine whether or not you're saved. Whether or not you come to church does not determine whether or not you are a son or a daughter of God. Once again, God does not deal with us based upon our performance. But what the text addresses is, catch this, it addresses the attitude. It causes you to ask the question, what am I most committed to? It addresses an attitude that says, will I just come to church when it's convenient? Will I only come to church when it doesn't cost me anything? If I'm busy and if I got something going on, is this the first thing that drops off? The text challenges us, are we willing to be imitators of God? 
This is one of the things that Jesus did. He consistently and passionately went to the synagogue. It is something that we need to see, and it's something that we need to evaluate. Now, here's the best thing about what I'm saying. Commitment and the custom is not measured by how many Sundays you come in a row. The commitment and custom is not about did you get here at 11 or 11.05 or 10.55. That's not what it's about. It's not about how much you give or how many ministries you serve on. Commitment is an issue of the heart. It's not measured in things that can be compared to another person. But commitment is something that is only revealed when you are honest between yourself and the Lord. All of us have got to step away and ask myself, what customs am I most committed to? Like, what areas of my life can I be counted on? When it comes to spiritual commitment, we must understand that it's not just about checking off a box on Sunday, but it's about modeling what other people need to see. I've got to ask myself, as I, look, as I looked over the passage this week, I asked myself the question, Thomas, is there a commitment in your life to being in a holy place? Not just because you're the preacher. Not just because you're the one talking on Sunday. Are you committed to being in the place that God wants you to be? Some might be asking the question, well, what about when I don't feel like coming? What about when I'm tired? What about when I'm having issues? What about, you know, if I just want to, you know, just want to chill? I want to encourage you. Once again, it's not about how many times you check off the box. It's about your heart. And the Lord is calling us to check our heart. Because here's the thing. There is no extra credit for coming. You don't, you don't get a bonus for being here 52 Sundays a year. But what the text is communicating to us is you and I need to evaluate what areas of my life can I be counted on. Like when people looked at Jesus' life, they knew that brother was going to be at the synagogue. They knew that that was a priority in his life. When people look at your life, what will they say is the priority? When people look at your life, what will they say they, they can count on you on? I literally asked myself this question. I said, Thomas, what can people count on in your life? I wrote a couple down. People can count on me being petty. You can count on me throwing a shot. You can count on me being adversarial. You can count on me giving you my opinion. You can count on me speaking the truth. You can count on me going to Orange Theory four days a week. You can count on me doing a lot of things. And nothing is wrong with those things. But can I be counted on with the things that matter to God? When someone asks me to pray for them, can I be counted on to pray? When someone asks me to serve, can I be counted on to serve? When someone is in need of uh, love or encouragement, can I be counted on to do those things? Can I be counted on to deny myself and take up the cross daily? Can I be counted on to make disciples? Can I be counted on to be gracious? Can I be counted on to be loving? Can I be counted on even when it's not convenient? Can I be counted on? When you think about the text, we're not just speaking about uh, coming to church. The customs and commitment that we need to consider uh, are so much bigger than your church attendance. It's, It's about your spiritual discipline in your life. It's about the areas of my life that help me grow. Can I be counted on to spend time in God's word? Can I be counted on to pray? Can I be counted on to serve? Can I be counted on to love? Can I be counted on to be kind? Can I be counted on to show self-control? Can I 
be counted on because catch this. When I can be counted on concerning the things that matter to Christ, that brings honor and glory to Christ. So first we learn about his custom, but secondly, we learned about his communication. Verse 17 says, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. and He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. And he sent me to proclaim the liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight of the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, this is uh, the first sermon that we find from Jesus in the book of Luke. And specifically, Jesus expounds on Isaiah 61. This week, I want to encourage you to, in your, in your own time, go back and reread Isaiah 61. It is a prophetic passage where it, it is a promise of the coming Messiah. And in the passage, there was one particular thing that the passage promises that the Messiah would do, and that is preach. Uh, in verse 18, it is a promise that he will preach good news. Uh, he will preach the proclamation of the release of those who are captive. He will preach uh, the recovery of the sight of the blind. He will preach uh, to set free those who are oppressed. Uh, when, you, when I looked at this passage this week, it was, it was so interesting to me that there were so many different opinions in terms of commentators uh, uh, concerning how we should interpret this passage. Uh, some uh, interpret this passage as purely a political statement. Uh, they believe that Jesus was a social and political revolutionary, and because he mentioned the liberation of the poor and oppressed, uh, those who are in that camp have a strong conviction about how the church should have a role in alleviating the suffering of people who are actually poor and oppressed. Uh, other commentators view it as a passage that is purely spiritual. Uh, they view the passage as a picture of the coming spiritual salvation that comes from the Lord. Uh, in that group, uh, they speak about how uh, viewing the poor or viewing the blind or the oppressed is all connected to sin. Uh, they view this as spiritual brokenness, spiritual poverty, spiritual imprisonment, spiritual oppression, and it is simply going to be answered when we get to heaven. Uh, those who are in that camp interpret this passage as Jesus just meeting spiritual needs while ignoring our physical needs. I want to step in and say it, say it this way. To properly interpret the passage, we must first understand that this passage only applies to Jesus. This passage only applies to Jesus and not us. To Jesus and not the special preachers. To Jesus and not the super-duper Christian. The, the passage literally says in verse 21, and he began to say to them, today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, as you listen, the scripture is fulfilled. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who is able to do these things. Jesus is telling them, I am the Messiah that Isaiah 61 has promised. It's saying that I am the one who will break forth into the world, and I am the one who will preach to the poor, the imprisoned, the blind, and those who need to be set free. That's what the passage is communicating. When we read the passage... We must accept, catch this, that the passage speaks to people who are poor and impoverished because of sin, but also the passage does not ignore people who are poor. 
Like, we've got to acknowledge that, that our sinfulness brings us spiritual poverty, but we also got to understand that there are people in this world who are poor. As, as we continue to read the Gospel of Luke, we will see that many of the people who responded to the Gospel were destitute, they were materially poor, they were beggars, and Jesus was willing to meet them right where they were. The passage speaks to those who are spiritually blind, but also, who, also those who are physically blind. The passage speaks to those who've been blinded by the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4, but also to those who are physically blind. I want you to hear me on this. The gospel we preached cannot be divorced from real life issues. So our challenge is not to be Jesus, to be cunning and crafty with how we respond. Our challenge is not to uh, go into neighborhoods and try to be uh, the Messiah who comes uh, to set the people free. Our challenge is to point people to Christ. And our challenge is to trust that Christ is, is going to minister to people and heal people and set people free based upon his will, not based upon my will. The passage challenges us to get to a place to where we are not just having a holy huddle and not just have a time where we come in and swell our heads with theology and Bible knowledge. Our task is to feed on Christ and help other people who are hungry feed on Christ. Our responsibility is to help people who are blind to see their spiritual need. Our responsibility is to help people be set free from the sin that is entangling their life. And in the midst of that, we got to allow the Lord to deal with their physical needs as well. As a pastor, I've been in, I've been in many rooms where there were people who were sick unto death. And as a pastor, I prayed in faith. I prayed for healing. I've asked God to meet them where they are. But I've always got to give room for God to be God. I've got to make room for the Lord to allow his will to be done, even through death and disappointment. Our faith does not mean that we make demands to, uh, for God to do what we want him to do, but our faith allows us to say, you may be poor for the rest of your life, but I'm going to love you in the midst of your poverty. Our faith requires that we tell people that you may never physically get your sight, but you can have spiritual sight. Our faith requires us to minister to those who are in prison uh, by them knowing that they may never be released from prison, but we want to let them know that God has released us from the spiritual prison. We got to speak to those who are in the midst of hard times, but we also got to understand that God has given us a message that transcends time. So first, we learn about his custom. Secondly, we learn about his communication. And thirdly, we learn about his kingdom. We learn about his kingdom. Uh, Kathy, I know that's not a C word, but that's a K. It's okay. It's okay, sister. <laughs> Kathy likes to bring that to my attention often. Verse 22 says, And all spoke well of him and marveled, marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And he said to them, and, they, and then they said, Is this not Joseph's son? In verse 22, we see a shift in the text. The people enjoy the sermon, but they miss the Savior. Unfortunately, they missed the sermon because they were just too familiar with Jesus. In the text, they say, is this not Joseph's son? Is this not the carpenter's son? When we consider their response, it's a reminder that the truth can be hidden from us in plain sight. 
uh, sometimes the familiar hides the fantastic. That's why most automobile accidents happen within a few blocks of the home because the closer you get to home, the more familiar you are, the more familiar you are and the, the more you let your guard down. Familiarity is why a lot of people don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, we have enough Bible to make us think we're okay. Uh, we are familiar enough with the stories uh, to be dangerous. Uh, many of us, not none of y'all, but many of us uh, can operate like uh, CME Christians. Y'all know what that is? Y'all know what that is? Christ Christmas, Easter, and Mother's Day Christians? We just show up a couple times a year. It's not that, not that it's super important, but we can get so familiar with Jesus where we begin to neglect Jesus, and I want to encourage you that we need to look at Jesus a little bit more closely. Verse 23 tells us, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, and he said truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. In the text, the people are essentially saying, if you do a miracle, then we'll believe you. Since you are just Joseph's son, since you just Mary's baby boy, can we really trust you? Can we really rely on you? Can we really follow you? Can we abandon all to trust you? The people are essentially saying, if you perform for us, we will do what you tell us to do. It's saying, if you do what we want you to do, then we will believe. If you want me to believe, you've got you've to answer my list of demands. The same thing they did in the text is the same thing we do today. Like there's not, I cannot think of a passage that is not more applicable to our lives today. Like how many of us have said, Lord, if you answer my prayer, then I believe. Lord, if you give me the spouse, then I'll believe. Lord, if you give me the career, then I'll believe. Lord, if you give me the car, the house, the vacation, the family, the healing, then I will believe. Truth of the matter is, in the past, the people are communicating, after I get the stuff I want from you, then I'll believe. They didn't have a problem with the message of getting out of prison or getting their debts paid or, you know, having a sight for those who are blind. They were like, man, I'll sign up for all of that. But this idea of surrendering all to the Lord was too much for them to handle. For the Lord to ask them to be in a position where they were willing to surrender, they had to say, Lord, you got to do something for me first. We got to work a deal. We got to barter this thing out. Like, if you really want me to believe, then you got to do something for me. If you want me to believe, you got to scratch my back first. Just, just believing because you said it, that's just too much. That's just too extra. That's too naive. That's too overboard. That's too short-sighted. That's, that's just not enough for me. It's, it's, it's this mindset that, God, if you answer my prayer, if you answer my list of demands, then I will trust you. I want you, I want to, just, I want you to think about this for a second. If God were to operate based upon those terms, who would be God? Like, if God were to be beholden to your list of demands, then will he be God? If God were to be held hostage by the things that you want God to do, then who would be God? 
It's not how it works. Believing always precedes receiving. Surrender always precedes supplication. Obedience always precedes a blessing. The problem in the text is our problem today. We don't have a problem with the kingdom. We have a problem with the terms of how God chooses to bring forth his kingdom. Because they didn't like how Jesus was was preaching and operating, verse 28 says, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up. Matter of fact, this makes me feel good when people get mad at me. Let me read that again. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue, all in Calvary, they got upset and they were upset. They were angry. And when they rose up, they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. And catch this, so they could throw him down the cliff. They wanted to kill Christ. They got so mad that they wanted to kill Jesus. Now, I want you to catch the progression of the text. I didn't even look at verse 14 yet. Verse 14 says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Verse 15, And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. That's verse 14 and 15. But by verse 29, they wanted to kill this brother. In the text, one group wanted to glorify him, and the text, another group wanted to get rid of him. I can't help but ask the question, Thomas, which group are you in? The first group that is committed to glorifying Jesus or the second group that's wanting to get rid of Jesus? On one level, there are two groups, one that admired Jesus and the second that was agitated by Jesus, one that accepted Jesus, another that rejected Jesus. The text explicitly addresses two groups, but before we consider the two groups, I want us to first consider a third group. The third group, I believe, is is more of us here today. The third group is the group that most of us identify the most with. Like, you want to say you're a Christian, but you ain't that sold-out Christian, right? You ain't that fire-baptized, Holy Ghost-filled Christian, right? You're more of a chew-the-meat-spit-up-the-bone Christian, meaning you're going to figure out what you want. You're going to figure out the parts of it that you like, and the parts that you don't like, you're going to get rid of that part. Like that whole idea of surrendering all or sacrificing, that's just too much for you. It's too crazy. That's too, that's too deep. Like I want to get some encouragement. I want the Lord to bless me. I want the Lord to be with me. I want the Lord to protect me. But that, the areas that I'm not ready to change, I want Jesus to leave that alone. Like I don't want him to do that. Like I'm not like all in for glorifying him. I'm not all in for getting rid of him. I'm kind of in the middle. Kind of want to just be indifferent. I don't want to rock the boat. I just want to be a, a good Christian. I want to be a safe Christian. I want to be crazy. I just kind of want to be indifferent. The reality of it is, there really are just two groups. Even the indifferent group is still the hostile group. Like, what would you say about a parent who was indifferent about feeding a baby? What would you say? What would you say about a doctor that was indifferent about treating a person who was sick? What would you say about a fireman that was indifferent about a house being on fire? We might think there are three groups, like the gun-ho glorify group and the get-rid-of-Jesus group, and I want to kind of be somewhere in the middle group. 
but there are really only two groups. There's one group that receives what God has said, and there's another group that is rejecting what God has said. Chris, you can come on back up. I'm done this morning. When I think about our application, I really believe we have three points or three prayers that we want to strongly consider this morning. We look at the passage and we look at the custom of Jesus. The first thing we need to pray is, may we have the right commitment? Like, your commitment is revealed in your customs, the things that you consistently do, the things that can be counted on. I know we want to say one thing. I know we want to believe that we are committed, but what can people count on? Like, with your kids, what can they count on? With your spouse, what can they count on? On your job, what can they count on? Like, what can people count on? I pray that as we live our lives, that we will be committed to the things that the Lord has called us to be committed to, loving one another and serving one another, blessing one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another. Like I hope and pray that is what our lives are committed to. Secondly, may we have the right communication. Like we don't have to be wise and crafty. We don't have to show up to be a savior. We need to be able to communicate where we found bread, like how God has changed us, how God has given us sight, how the Lord is transforming us. We just need to be able to tell people how the needs have been met in our lives so that they can see those same needs met in their lives. And then lastly, may we serve the right kingdom. Truth of the matter is, we are building a kingdom, all of us. We're building something. We've got to be honest about whether or not what we're building pleases the Lord. It's convicted in just looking at this in my own personal life. Like, Thomas, what are you building? What are you building in your marriage? What are you building with your children? What are you building in your ministry? What are you building on campus? Like, what are you building? Because whether or not you want to admit to it, all of us are building something. May we build what brings honor and glory to God.